Well, good morning once again. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you to our Pathfinder Club for leading us in worship today. Kids, thank you for the uh, music and for the story. It's impacting my heart this morning. As I mentioned last week, we're coming in a way to the end of a journey through prayer. This is the final message under the series, As It Is. Started back in January, and now we're here at the end of April. It's hard to believe how fast time has blown by. By the way, I'm feeling a little better this week. You notice I can actually make it up the front steps here, starting to take the heel lifts out of my, out of my boot contraption. Hopefully with just a couple more weeks of this to go. I appreciate your prayers very, very much. And there's nothing like an injury or being flat on your back or a challenging circumstance to make you wonder if prayer actually works. We've been talking about prayer for the better part of three months, but do prayers actually work? Does the conversational relationship that we engage in with God actually do something on a cosmic level? Or is what was going to happen going to happen already, whether we prayed about it or not? We're gonna engage with that question as we finish our series this morning. Anecdotally, in my own life, qualitatively in the past couple months, I can say absolutely 100%, I believe prayer works. Because I've felt the power of prayer in a multitude of circumstances, especially being flat on my back for a couple of weeks and people reaching out saying, praying for you, praying for you, praying for you. It makes a difference. But where in scripture do we find that it actually does make a difference? We're going to look in a couple of places today. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 32. We're going to spend a little bit of time there and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. Exodus chapter 32 and the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you want to have it ready, you can put a finger on one side, finger on the other. Or if you brought your digital scroll this morning, um, you can have your fingers ready to go there. Exodus Chapter 32, we'll read starting in verse seven in a moment, but it starts with the chapter starts with Moses on the top of a mountain. God has called him up and he's going to give him some instructions that we will come to find out as it's 10 commandments. It's, it's the law. It's, it's, it's God's special instructions to his people. And Moses is up there for so long that the children of Israel begin to believe that something has happened to Moses and they might as well just kind of continue on with life. Who, Who is Moses? The guy that brought us out of the desert? Aaron, you can lead us. So Aaron, Moses' brother says, okay, um, everybody bring your, your, your offerings. We'll put them in a big pile, all the gold, the silver, the metals, the precious metals that you have. We're gonna melt them down and turn them into a golden calf. And then we're going to worship. So it happens, they bring everything down, they make the golden calf and they enter into an obnoxious worship service that looked more like every other nation than it did the people of God. And God is talking with Moses and in verse seven, he tells Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people, no, this is God speaking, your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, 
O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Notice the emotions with which God responds to the situation. This is one of the clearest pictures in scripture where I think God pulls back the veil a little bit into his actual heart for humanity. And notice he tells Moses, he says, these are your people. He distances himself from them for a little bit. These are your people, Moses. You better go back down the mountain, get a handle of them. Because if you don't, I'm going to destroy all of them. And the nation that I promised Abraham, Moses, it's just going to be you and me. I'm going to make a nation out of you. Here's how Moses replies, Exodus chapter 32, verses 11 through 13. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord, his God. Oh Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them from the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them Uh, their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth. Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens and will give them all of this land this land that I have promised to your descendants and they will possess it forever. Moses prays to God and he says, God, I I don't think this is the right course of action. Would you be willing to change your mind about your people? Remember what you promised our fathers. Remember your character. Remember who you are. Moses pleads on behalf of God's people. And what we would call today is intercessory prayer. Someone standing in the gap between God and someone else. Would you do something, God? Would you change your mind? And God replies in Exodus chapter 32, verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring upon his people. Hmm, can God change his mind? Isn't he all-knowing and all-powerful with with all wisdom? Can God, the God of the universe, the one who created everything, who ordered the stars and the heaven and parted the waters of the seas and created animals and spoke things into existence and then created man, could that God change his mind? Scholars have debated back and forth and some will... uh, Some will submit that, ah, this is just an anthropomorphism. God isn't actually changing his mind. It's just the best approximation that we have to God changes his mind with human language. But that's not what the text says. The text says that God changed his mind. Now, because of the intercession that Moses did on behalf of God's people, God was thinking about doing one thing, and then changed his mind about the terrible disaster that he had threatened to bring upon his people. If you're ever wondering if prayer works, when we pray, God responds. And notice, Moses isn't asking for something outlandish or something to just appear out of nowhere. What he's doing is he's talking to God about God's character. 
And he's interceding on behalf of God's people. God, would you relent? Would you hold off? Remember the promises. You are a gracious and forgiving God. This God that Moses is speaking to is not Aristotle's immovable mover in Greek philosophy. You can't, God is, cannot be acted upon. He can act upon, but cannot be acted upon. No, 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 no. And we see multiple examples through scripture where God is willing to enter into relationship with his people and allow his people, humanity, you and me, to interact with and change the course of history. Remember in the Garden of Eden before the fall, the original task of Adam and Eve that God gave to them? They were to be rulers over this earth. God says, I've created this place and I want you to rule. Let me enter into a partnership with you that you have agency in charting the course of the history of this world. Remember Abraham, when he pleaded before God about Sodom and Gomorrah, God, if there's 40, would you spare? Yeah, I'll spare. If there's 35, yep. If there's 30, okay. If there's 20, yes. If there's 10, would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, I will spare. Jonah and Nineveh, God sends Jonah to the apostate Nineveh. And he doesn't think that they'll actually repent. He comes in preaching repentance and the forgiveness and grace of God. And they end up repenting. Then Jonah sits up on the top of the hill frustrated because says, God, you said you were going to destroy them. And God says, hold on. They've repented. They've turned back to me. The story are... Pathfinders just shared a moment ago where Jesus invites his disciples into agency, into the situation. The people are hungry. Why don't you do something about it? And it's Andrew going and finding five loaves and two fish and bringing them and Jesus multiplying. God wants to partner with humanity in the course of history of this world. And then there's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane where he pours out his heart. We've looked at this in the series where Jesus pours out his heart before God. Is there any other way? Can we do any other? Can we go by any other way? And God holds him close. And ever after that moment in the garden, Jesus steals himself towards the cross. John Mark Comer in the book, God Has a Name, puts it this way. We'll put this up on the screen for you. We are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawing into communion with him and there taking up our privileged role as his people. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of this world. In prayer, we are invited to join him in the directing the course of this world. When we pray, God responds. Dallas Willard puts it this way in his book, Hearing God. God does not exist to solve our problems. We exist to stand with God and count for something in this world. God's not just the genie in the the bottle or the vending machine in the sky where if we push the right buttons and say the right amount of prayers, then we'll get whatever sweet treat out that we think we need. No, God says, let's do this together. You are my people. Let's partner for the betterment of this world. And this concept, is grounded in the midst of the Lord's prayer. Remember, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Jesus assumes in that prayer that the will of God and the kingdom of God are not done and have not come yet. They are in the process of coming, but in him instructing us to pray those prayers, he assumes that there needs to be more work done. And God partners with his people to accomplish his good will and his good purpose every single step of the way. When we pray, God responds. And you know the rest of the story. Moses comes down and throws the tablets down. He's frustrated with God's people. He says, you guys, what in the world are you doing? There's a God who's called you out of Egypt and here, and you're going you're gonna to do this to him? And God's thinking about it more. And he's, no, I've got to do something about this. And Moses says, God, let, let's talk about it this way. You want to do this to your people? Take my life instead. If you're going to blot their names out of, take my life, blot me out of your book of life so that they might continue to experience your grace. Take them, take me, don't hurt them. And Moses, in a way, antitype of Christ, standing in the gap saying, my life for theirs. Would you take my life for theirs? And the story continues. This time that Moses spent with God doesn't just affect God, but it affects Moses as well. Exodus chapter 34, a few chapters over if you want to just turn a few pages in your Bible. Starting in verse 29 of Exodus 34, when Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over and he talked with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went to the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever instructions the Lord had given him. And the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. So he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. Being in the presence of God changed the physical representation of Moses' face. Let me say that one more time. Being in the presence of God changed how Moses appeared to the children of Israel. To the point, they're like, we can't, we can't take that. Moses, cover your face, please. He would speak to them and then he would oblige. He would cover his face. When we are in the presence of God, we're changed. We're changed. We can't help but reflect the radiance and the goodness of God. And Paul in 2 Corinthians, here's the connection, will riff off of this story talking about grace in how we live our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul picks up the story. He says, we are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil, so they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit is, there is freedom. 
So all of us who've had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Paul says, we're not like Moses. We have to cover our faces. When we believe in Jesus, it's as as if the veil has been removed from scripture and we can behold the glory of God in all of its majesty because of Jesus. Jesus is the one that has been interceding on our behalf. Jesus is the one that stands in the gap. And when we get in his presence, we are changed. When we pray, we respond our complexion shifts, the way that we see the world changes because we have been in the presence of a gracious and a loving God. I like to think about what Paul is writing uh, in something that's been happening in my life recently. You know, Micah turned six months old this past week. uh, And for the past couple of months, uh, facial expressions have just been coming in and he's the sweetest kid, just big smiles and just happy with life and everything going on. And one of my favorite things to do is to take him and to hold him up in front of a mirror that we have in the hallway. And he looks at me and he looks at himself and we just smile, these big smiles. And then he looks at me and he looks at himself. And I don't know if you've figured out if that's him yet, but he certainly recognized me. At least I hope so. And he's just got this big smile on, my, on his face. It's the same way when we we get into the presence of God and we look into God as we're looking into the mirror. We see the glory of God and it can't help but change our complexion. Can't help but change the way that we express ourselves in the world. We can't help but reflect the glory of God when we are in the presence of God. Glory is who God is. It's his character the way that he expresses himself. And Paul gives us two ways to think about how we reflect the glory and the character of God in the world. First, in the beginning of chapter three of 2 Corinthians, he says this, verses one through three. Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on our behalf? Surely not. Verse two, the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves, your lives, are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter, quote unquote, is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. That is the essence of the gospel, that God transforms hearts. And when we pray, when we get into the presence of God, the one who we can reckon with, that we can be in communication with, that we can be in relationship with, he begins to write love letters on our hearts that we see in each other. And we could spend hours talking about the stories of the graciousness and the goodness of God in our lives, where God has stepped in and showed up and done amazing, marvelous things. And when we share those with others, it is as if our hearts have been opened and the letter of our lives is being read. A letter from Jesus Christ himself. And that letter is written in the quiet place of prayer as God works on our heart. First, Paul says we're letters. Second, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts 
so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Paul says we're clay jars. We've got incredible treasure inside of us and no one perhaps would know the incredible value that is inside of us because of the shell that is our bodies, our minds and our souls. But he says, God uses fragile clay jars to glorify him, to carry his treasure to the world, to grant his light to the people around you. God uses you broken and fragile as you might be. That if you take a clay jar, you know, you just drop it, thousand pieces on the floor. And we can feel like that often in our lives, that by whatever circumstances, the things that people say, what we are encountered with on a regular basis, that if someone were to take us and to drop us like a clay jar, we would fall in a thousand pieces on the floor. And God says, that's what I want to use to shine my glory. Because the broken cracks, the lid that doesn't quite fit just right, emanates and allows for the light of God to shine out of us. We're letters, we're clay jars. I have come across a a study that I often share in class and you've probably heard me share it in a sermon before, but it's so poignant and I think needs to be shared especially when we're connecting the the prayer gets us into the presence of God and then the presence of God changes us and we have have something then to share. A study was done a a couple of years ago of a nondescript seminary here in the United States and they took some seminary students, those are studying masters of divinity, wanting to be pastors, theologians, scholars, and they took the homiletics class and they divided them in two. They tasked everybody with planning to uh, and preparing a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Once they'd done that, they divided everybody in two and come to preaching day, half of the individuals who came to preach, they told, hey, we're sorry, we we didn't let you know ahead of time. Uh, We changed the location of where you're going to be delivering the sermon. Uh, We need you to head to that location. Don't worry, we moved the time so you're not late. Take your time, make sure your mind is right as you prepare, as you uh, get ready to share the sermon. The other half, they told, hey, sorry, did you see our email? We changed locations. uh, And by the way, we moved the preaching time 15 minutes earlier. So if you want a good grade, you should probably run and uh, get over to that other location to deliver your sermon. Um, Good luck. Hope you make it. And along the way, the, the route that they would take, the entrance of the building that these seminarians were supposed to be, an actor was placed at the door who, as they saw the seminarian approach, went into a, uh, a faked medical emergency. They just pass out or, you know, oh, I ruptured my Achilles tendon or something like that. I don't know. Something life-threatening enough that as they're, as they're going by that you can't help but stop. And they wanted to know, does, does preparing a sermon on the Good Samaritan do anything for the person who's preaching it? And here's what they found. The people, the, the seminarians, the, the pastors, the preachers who were told, don't worry, you have plenty of time. You can make it to your, your sermon on time. This is just where you need to go. 95% of them stopped and assisted this person. But those who were in a hurry that had some place to be and that were already late to their preaching assignment, 
95% of them passed the person by without giving them any assistance. While they had prepared a sermon on the good Samaritan, the one who stopped and helped. Could the irony be any stronger? When we are in the presence of God, And when we believe God's word, it must do something for us. It is not enough to just carry the word of God and preach it with our mouths. We must must live it with our lives because the gospel depends on it. E.M. Bounds in the book, The Power Power Through Prayer. I'll put this up on the screen for you. The glory and efficiency of the gospel is staked on the people who proclaim it. When we get into the presence of God, we are transformed and it's up to us how efficient and the glory of the gospel, it's up to us. It's staked on us and how we proclaim it with our lives. It's not enough to just have head knowledge that, yeah, be a good Samaritan and stop and help the person. But what is enough when we see someone in need reaching out and caring to the best of our ability because the gospel has transformed us. And notice that the glory and the efficiency of the gospel is not staked on plans, on programs, on organizations, discipleship tracks, meetings, or committees. It's people. God uses people to interact with the course of history. God blesses people. We can have the greatest plans that we want, We're going to have the greatest programs. We're going to have the best facilities. We're going to have all of that. But it is empty unless God himself comes upon us. Unless the spirit of God rests on us as individuals and as a community, we can have the greatest strategic plan for the next 10 years to evangelize our community and our county. We can have the best plans to disciple our kids. We can have the best programs to bless schools. But unless our leaders, our our teachers, our pastors, our elders, our board, you in the pews today, unless we receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit, all of that is lost. We'll wear ourselves out working so hard for something that that God is not in, not realizing that God just wants to use us. Tyler Statton in the, the book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, quoted, fairly regularly says this, the modern church's best kept secret is this. We believe in productivity, not prayer. We believe in solid programs, above average teaching, and yet another worship album release. The church's underground atheism is in, in the church's underground atheism in our time is that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except prayer. We have to sit with that one for a little bit. You know, uh, kind of halfway through the series, we have that, that map that went out in the lobby and everybody's putting pins. Hey, I'm praying here, I'm praying here. And it's wonderful to see it populated as a physical representation of this is where we are praying. And just an interesting statistic about that map. Uh, when I ordered the pins that would go in that map, I ordered a thousand of them and they came in two boxes of 500. Uh, and just this past week, I don't know if somebody, you know, sniped some for, you know, your arts project or something, but if all of the pins that are originally in the little dish are on the board, I didn't go through and count, there are over 500 pins in the board. Individuals 
people, families saying, I'm praying here, I'm praying here, I'm praying there. And I put another 500 pins out on the dish today. So if you haven't put your pin in the board of, hey, here's where I'm praying, please do so on the way out today. E.M. Bounds again puts it this way. What the church needs today is not more machinery or, or, or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but people whom the Holy Spirit can use, people of prayer, people mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not follow through methods, but through people. He does not come on machinery, but on humanity. He does not anoint plans, but persons, persons of prayer. Now, Ian Bounds was writing in a time where you could say men of prayer, and it was assumed that, okay, that's all people. Just updating the languages a little bit, we more inclusive of those who are sitting in this room. God anoints people. It's persons he's after. It's beating hearts that he wants. And when we come to God in prayer, we have the ability to say, God, I don't agree with this outcome. Let me stand in the gap for somebody else. And now you and God partner to alter the course of history, not because you have a great plan, a great program or an idea, but because the Holy Spirit has fallen upon you. And God works in by and through you and me to accomplish his good purpose. If God can use clay pots and ripped up papyri, he can use you and me. We are not in need of better systems. We don't need a new program for evangelism. We don't need shiny new equipment. What we need is people willing to pray. That's where it starts. We want to transform this community. We want to hasten the coming of Jesus. We need to be praying. On our knees, praying. The enemy has strongholds in every part of this world. And the only way we will overcome is by the blood of the lamb, by Jesus Christ himself. And when we connect our hearts to God's heart and we get on our knees, wear our pants out because we're praying, that will change the course of history. We need men and women, people who are willing to be used by God for his purposes. God uses people to do his will not just plans. Prayer is the open-ended invitation to participate in the course of human history. Do you wanna make a difference in this world? Do you wanna grow up to be someone who they write history books about? Pray, that's all you gotta do, pray. And then when God asks you to do something, do it. And then pray some more. And then God asks you to do something, do it. And then pray some more. And maybe you don't agree with the outcome, let God know. He might change his mind. He might change your mind. When we pray, God responds and we respond. We respond. And it's our partnership with God that draws us closer into relationship and that will alter the course of human history. When we pray, every day, you and I wake up with the opportunity to change history. Every single day. And you're like, ah, who am I? Yeah, what's a crumpled up piece of papyri or a clay jar? God uses both of those. So my appeal to you today and my invitation is that we would be a praying community and that we would pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that we would join together with our 
Little prayers ascending from here and from there, calling upon the God of the universe. God, would you show up and do something right here and right now? Would you fill us with your spirit? And may we respond with reckless abandon. God, we will do your will and your will alone. When we pray, it's gonna change some things. It's gonna change some things. Let's pray. Father, we have been through so much in the past few months. We've learned a lot about prayer. We've seen you show up in miraculous and in wonderful ways. Now, God, as we conclude a season that's been especially focused on prayer, God, may, may, may this season never end. May again today we begin that unceasing prayer, that never ending conversation that you desire so much. And God, may we be empowered and emboldened to know our place in the universe, our place at the table with you as, as you are outlining and making decisions about what is to come. God, may we come humbly yet boldly realizing that we have real agency in the outcomes of people's lives, our lives right here on this earth. And God, may we pray and may we pray like we never have before. God, we love you. We look forward to seeing you soon. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his, up his countenance on you and give you peace. Go today in grace and peace.